welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. All right. Would you stand for our scripture reading? It's the same one. It's been the last several weeks. It's our Lenten reading. It's Matthew chapter uh, three, and I'm going to read starting at verse 16 through 411. It's on page 967, if you want to follow along. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting, 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Every spring, Major League Baseball players head to Florida or to Arizona for about six weeks of training in preparation for a season that starts early April and could end or extend into October. 162 regular season games, a very long uh, season and not being the biggest baseball fan in the world, I would add an overly long season, but that's beside the point. And like any sport at any level... Training involves revisiting the basics. Throwing, hitting, bunting, picking up ground balls, catching fly balls, knowing where to go and what to do when you get there. Training is about reconditioning muscles to respond in certain ways and at certain times without having to think about it. So that through repetition, through practice, the movements and the actions and the reactions required for a given position become first nature. We do them without, or they do them, we do them without having to think about it. And there are a lot of similarities between spring training and Lent. Both are about six weeks long. Both are about focused preparation. Both involve training. So we learn to do the right thing at the right time in the right way without having to think about it. And both occur on the front side of a rather long season. In some ways, the Christian life, in fact, in all ways, the Christian life, the essence of it, is the way of Jesus getting worked into us through the Holy Spirit and through our own training so that the way of Jesus becomes our first nature. Well, Lent is half over. I'll simply rhetorically ask, How is your training going? We've been talking each week about this passage I read a moment ago 
where a relatively unknown Jesus gets baptized and then to frame this whole passage and in many ways his whole public ministry, he's affirmed as God's adored son. And then the Holy Spirit leads him out into the wilderness for 40 days and nights of spring training before his long season begins. A season that will end with an empty tomb. And each week we've been talking about the things that happened out in the wilderness that apparently Jesus needed to experience to prepare him and train him for this journey. And today we're considering the practice of fasting. Oh joy, you say. And I concur regarding perhaps a low view of fasting. I've never been very good at fasting, and I can tell you with almost... 100% certainty, I have rarely ever felt like fasting. I'll do it before certain medical procedures. I occasionally do it to advance some health goal. But Matthew 4.2 says Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, and he didn't fast because he was having blood work done. He didn't fast to jumpstart his weight loss program. He fasted to train himself for kingdom purposes. He fasted so he could focus on his father. He fasted because he knew that his physical body was essential in his spiritual life. And I imagine that idea, that last one, might be unfamiliar to some of us and maybe even a bit unnerving. The importance of the body, our physical body, in our life with God. I would say the centrality of our physical bodies in our spiritual life. We're going to come back to this in a moment. But Matthew chapter 4 and verse 2 makes me pause. After fasting 40 days and nights, he was hungry. Can you imagine the mental images and cravings ripping through your body after 40 days without food? I mean, just think about that. What thought would you have that didn't involve food? The living God dresses himself in human flesh, comes and lives among us for three years, and just before his public life begins, he fasts from food for over a month. Now, I'm probably never going to fast that long, but I can't brush past the fact that Jesus... And before him, Moses, Daniel, Nehemiah, many of the prophets, Paul after him, and the early church, at times, abstained from food to focus on God. And not just them. When the early church was first starting, so we're in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, into the 100s, into the 120s, 30s, 40s, first couple centuries, in the early church, they had these incredibly shockingly high standards for the members of the church. It's mind-blowing to read these documents and go, wow, they were laying it down. And one of the things that was just embedded into the DNA of the early church was Wednesdays and Fridays were fast days. Throughout history, ever since, Christian people have fasted 
on occasion. I wouldn't want to put fasting in the category of prayer, worship, reading scripture, serving the poor. I wouldn't want to stand here and put fasting in the category of God commands us to fast, therefore we should do it. I don't want to push it that far because I don't believe the Bible pushes it that far. But the witness of scripture and of history is that Christians engaged in the practice of fasting to train for kingdom purposes. And something in me knows whether I like it or not, that I need fasting. In a culture that constantly tells me it's all about me, I need fasting because fasting works muscles in my soul and in my body that rarely get a workout. So to begin, let's talk about sacred bodies. Over the past few years, I've been in various gatherings where I've had the opportunity to talk about the relationship between our physical bodies and what we often deem our spiritual lives. And each time in these settings, it is apparent, obviously apparent, that this is an unfamiliar connection and maybe even an unnerving connection to a majority of the people. We tend to think of our life as a series of departments. So we have our career, family, marriage, friends, finances, retirement, school, body, soul, emotions, feelings, thoughts, spiritual, physical, and so on we could go. And we may think, I think we generally do think, of these different departments as independent of each other. As though there are these soundproof walls separating one department from another, almost making it as though each of these departments is its own business, with its own office, with its own purpose and function and goal. But in fact, these departments in our lives are interconnected and interdependent. And all of them together represent our life with God. Or say it this way, everything in life is our spiritual life, to draw back to what we just heard. When Julie goes off to work in her nursing job on a Tuesday, that isn't her work life or her career only. That is her spiritual life having now an opportunity to manifest itself in her work. One time a guy asked Jesus, what's the essence of life with God? And Jesus answered him in Luke 10 and verse 27. You can see this on the screen. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength, body, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, love God and love others with all of who you are. So our spiritual life encompasses every department Of our lives. So our bodies, as part of our life, our bodies are sacred. They are part of our spiritual life. Romans 12 and verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. 1 Corinthians 6.19, Paul writes, Your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God 
with your bodies. Now, I know from personal experience, and when I say personal experience, I don't mean I've been in settings where people, where this comes up, and then I can tell people are feeling this way. I mean by personal experience, when this comes up, I feel this way. That when the body is mentioned, not this body, but this body, when the physical body and talking about it comes up, I know from personal experience that for some, shame is lurking nearby. Men, women, children, old, young, it doesn't matter. When the body is brought up, shame is lurking nearby. See, some people, and I don't, we could use different degrees of words, but some people despise their physical body. It screams unworthy and unlovely to them on a regular basis. So they try to downplay it. They try to ignore it. They almost try to separate their life from it as if that were possible. For others in our culture, it's true, the body is everything. It is their God. It's worshipped, it's treasured, it's cherished, it's preserved. It is everything. In my early Christian experience, the physical body was a second-class citizen, usually only associated with sin and evil and cravings toward all the bad things. The flesh was bad. The spirit was good. And obviously, let's face it, our bodies certainly have all kinds of sinful impulses. And yet, Jesus was made in human likeness. He is God in the flesh, God incarnate. So he breathed, he laughed, he hungered. We just read this. He smiled, he got tired, he went to sleep, he yawned, he walked, he talked, he reached his hands out and touched, he bled, he suffered, he died. And all of this happened in and through his body. So I want to say it again. Our bodies are sacred. They are essential in our life with God. We could even say they are central in our life with God because who we are inwardly always gets expressed outwardly through our bodies, through our words, facial expressions, by staying when things get heated or walking away. By being vulnerable and open or closed and afraid. See, whatever is in us, whether it's shame, pain, jealousy, insecurity, bitterness, unforgiveness, fear, anger, whatever it might be, whatever is in us eventually and always comes out of us. Our inner life never stays inner. Our inner life is not Las Vegas. What happens on the inside doesn't stay on the inside. It always finds a way out. And the way it comes out is through our bodies. This is why we always try to prioritize the transformation of the inner life. Because if the inner life is transformed, then the outer life will manifest it. Whereas if all we're doing is tweaking the outer life, behavior modification, we can do all that without touching the inner life. Let me give an example. Suppose Julie says to me, hey, I'm pretty wiped out tonight. Would you mind cleaning the kitchen? 
I look away and I mumble an, an unenthusiastic, yeah, she follows up. Is that okay? I move a few steps away, give a half sigh, say, I guess. She says, why are you getting defensive? I say, I'm not. This doesn't ever happen with us, but it probably happens with you. <laughs> she says, you are defensive. And then she says something like this. I can hear it in your voice. I can see it in your face, or I can see it in your reaction. You see what's happening, what's within. Why is she asking me to clean you and think I'm tired? And think I've had a long day? Oh, blah. And out it comes. Face, voice. The point is our bodies are central and essential in our life with God. I'm going to repeat myself. I know in saying that, some of us are fidgeting. Because our bodies and us do not have a close relationship. Our bodies and us are enemies. And perhaps what I'm saying is part of this journey is learning to love our enemy. Because it is sacred. Fasting is one of those practices aimed directly at training the body in the way of the kingdom. Let's talk about deprivation and discipleship. Fasting is the decision to temporarily deprive our bodies of food. Might be one meal, two, a whole day. Sun up to sundown is how the early church generally did it. Fast from when the sun came up until the sun came down. Maybe fast for even more than one day. And the reason for the fast is to abstain from food, deprive our bodies of food, to focus on God and his kingdom. There are different kinds of fasts. We don't have time to go into all this, but one of the common ingredients in most of the fasting found in the Bible is this idea of a pivotal time is on the horizon. This is kind of what's going on in our reading. Some kind of new beginning is on the verge of happening. Or we might simplify it, a sacred moment where God's up to something. And it's kind of obvious he's up to something. Something's stirring. And in response, there's a fast. And there are all kinds of things we can fast from. But fasting works best when we abstain from something that we regularly partake in. Something we engage in every day is the perfect thing to fast from. Because everyday things have a heftier status with us. And these are the kinds of things, because they're everyday because they're part of our routine, because they are there so often, they can have the long-term effect of promoting self and all of its needs and wants and minimizing God. So finding something we engage in every day is the best thing to fast from. So our phone is a great thing to deprive ourselves from because we may be, and some of us definitely are, overly dependent on our phone without even realizing it. Always being connected has a long-term effect on our bodies and on our souls. And some people, as you know, don't know what to do when their phone is not nearby. Panic sets in. Fear of missing out. There's a hundred trails we could explore here. But as silly as this may sound, just think of it this way. 
We spend more time and energy and focus with our phone, perhaps, than with God. That might tell us something about where our phone needs to go now and then. Social media is another thing to regularly deprive ourselves from or permanently deprive ourselves from. Now, I've gone off on this many times to the agitation of many of you. So I've chosen to fast today from railing against (laughs) social media. Food is a perpetual part of our lives. It's there every day. Undoubtedly, right now, some of us are going, I can feel it right now. I hear it. I can feel it. And I can't wait. Every few hours, our bodies tell us they want something. Or our minds tell us if we had something, we would feel better. Food is a very good gift from our very good God. And our bodies, obviously, need it. But food can also be medication when we're bored or when we're hurting, or when we're lonely, or when we're despairing. The taste of something we love can bring brief and fleeting satisfaction, but if we train ourselves when we're bored or hurting or whatever to grab food, then we are training ourselves to grab food when these feelings arise. Food can become something we go to when we don't know what else to do. And think about the theology at work when every time our body is hungry, we give it something. Think of the theology that's embedded in that. It's actually an idolatry, not a theology. What we're doing on these occasions, perhaps without realizing it, is we're training ourselves to deal with boredom, pain, loneliness, and despair by eating. And what this does is it puts food or maybe even more so, the satisfaction of our urges on the level with God. Or to put it this way, our self rises up in some ways through the urges like hunger, and it demands our allegiance. And if we give it our allegiance every time, think of what we're training ourselves to be. Well, the practice of fasting breaks this cycle and trains us when that Hunger comes, instead of turning toward the cabinet, we turn toward God. And we rely on him. And we look to him for satisfaction and help. That word, we sang about it, that word, satisfaction. We look to him for satisfaction. And in doing this, we prioritize him over self. So fasting reconnects our bodies to our spiritual lives. I hope this is obvious, but when we fast, we're actually saying this body is sacred and it's part of my act of worship. And so I'm going to deny it and I'm going to take the urge that it's giving me and turn toward God. Several years ago, I read a book called Leaving Church. It was written by a pastor and she writes of a time when her husband, Ed, took a personal retreat on an Indian reservation in South Dakota. And at the start of the retreat, everything was taken away from Ed except a wool blanket. He was taken to a hill with his wool blanket, and he was left there for two days. These are the author's words. She writes, when I met Ed at the Atlanta airport, I had a hard time recognizing him. He'd shaved his beard. He'd spent two days naked before God. 
His eyes were like small suns in the middle of his sunburned face. He had lost weight. On the way home, he said many things, but one that stuck with me was, quote, you make church too easy. You make church too easy. It's a haunting restatement of Jesus in Matthew 16 and verse 24, where Jesus says to his friends, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Now, this verse is one you may have run into many times in your life, but it takes on a bit of fresh meaning when it is viewed in light of Jesus spending 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness fasting without food. He's giving his disciples here the terms of their discipleship, what's involved with it what they are signing up for, what we are signing up for. Here are the terms. They're really simple. Deny self, die to self, and follow him. Not exactly glossy marketing brochure material. Come join us and learn how to deny and die to yourself. In the context of Matthew 16, Jesus has just finished telling his disciples that he's heading for Jerusalem and he's going to suffer there and he's going to die there. And Peter says, not on my watch or not, it's never going to happen. So Jesus puts Peter in his place. Get out of my way. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. That's the phrase he uses. And I would put it this way. Peter's self has risen up and it's demanding its way because that's what our self does. Myself always prioritizes me and what I think and what I think I need. Jesus makes sure his disciples know what they are signing up for. Deny self, die to self, and follow him. And again, all this framed in this is my beloved son in him I am well pleased. All this framed in this ethic and atmosphere of eternal and indescribable love. Not a hammer dropping down. But nonetheless, deny self, die to self, and follow him in this ethic and culture of love. And fasting is a way to deny self. Because in, in a fast, we deny the cravings and the urgings of our bodies. We deny our hunger. So deny self. What does that mean, deny myself? It means deny your hunger once in a while. Let your hunger be a trigger that turns you toward God. So lastly, let's talk about being sustained by God. Think of something you love to eat. Let it come to mind right now. I know this is dangerous because you'll never think of anything else. But let it come to mind right now. A cookie. Not a vanilla wafer. Or an Oreo even. Think of one of those cookies, I can't remember the name of it, that comes in that box. It's like the size of a beach. It's got frosting all over it. It's more like a piece of cake than a cookie. Think of one of those. Big fancy ones. Or think of a double-double burger at In-N-Out. Or a porterhouse steak sizzling right in front of you. No fork, no knife. Just hands. How about a glass of really good wine? How about Chilean sea bass? I love that. 
Or chili cheese Fritos. Greg Rosler loves those. How about peanut butter? I love peanut butter. Just so that you hear. Not the planes. You got to get the crunchy stuff. Crunchy peanut butter. All of this good gifts from God to be enjoyed. In our passage, Jesus rebukes his tempter. Who says, hey, take that bread. Do your magic. It'll be. Or take that rock. Do your magic. It'll be bread. He says back to him, he's quoting Deuteronomy 8.3, man shall not live on peanut butter alone. Something like that. But on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This is astounding to me. Is Matthew exaggerating to make a point? Maybe overstating his case? Or is it really true that God's words have real life-giving sustenance? In them. And his words and his presence and his power can actually satisfy the cravings in our bodies, in our minds, and our thoughts. Is that true? From John chapter 6, Jesus is speaking to a crowd of people. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty, for my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them, just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. See, when we fast, it doesn't take long to learn how frail and fragile we are Because soon we will be hungry. We will, in other words, have a need. I mean, how frail and fragile can we be? In a few hours, or maybe right now, we hear it. We feel it. It's an indicator of our fragility. We have a need. And when that need kicks in, we start thinking about food. It won't take long. So among other things, hunger is a sign of our weakness. It's a sign of our fragility. We just aren't nearly as strong and self-reliant as we might think. Why? When you get hungry, can you satisfy your hunger without turning to something? Can any of us do that? Maybe today, maybe tomorrow. How about 50 days from now? Can we satisfy this without turning to something? That's the power of fasting. When we choose to fast and turn toward God in these needs and in these cravings and in these urgings, according to John 6, according to Matthew 4, and according to other places, Jesus meets us in the deprivation. He actually meets us in ways that are new and fresh and deep as the bread of life. His presence and his power actually can sustain us. The one who feeds on me will live because of me. There's something at work in the reality of God's kingdom that's more satisfying than peanut butter, cookies, whatever. And we can learn how to lean into this and draw from God's sustenance as his people. We do not live on bread alone. We do not live on bread alone. Something has happened 
in this encounter with God. And God's presence and God's power now will meet our needs. He's able to satisfy our cravings and our inklings more than food, more than technology, more than wine, more than whatever. In short, his presence is enough. So I want to suggest something to practice this week. To bring the wilderness into your world. And it's really, really simple. There's a verse in Psalm 23. I'm using the message version of this. This is Eugene Peterson's version. And it says, God, my shepherd, I don't need a thing. And this is what I'd like to suggest we do. Somehow, either write it down or look it up later, print it out. And sometime this week or several times this week, Maybe for breakfast or lunch or dinner or a whole day. Whatever you want to do. You don't have to be a hero here. But just when you feel hunger, have this verse in your phone or wherever. God, my shepherd, I don't need a thing. And what we're doing in this is we are saying, I'm going to choose to believe the kingdom of God is real. I'm going to choose to believe that this isn't just fluffy language. That God's just not just like tossing stuff out. And really it's nice to read about, but it's not real. What I'd like to encourage us to do is say, is this real? Or if you like this kind of phrase, does this actually work? And let's give it a shot. It's really simple. God, my shepherd, I don't need a thing. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the example of Jesus. We're so grateful for your word that opens us up and speaks to us. We're so incredibly thankful for your abundant love and your pursuing love. And I pray this week as we step into the wilderness and practice fasting, That this idea that you are our shepherd and we don't need a thing would come to us when we think we need food. And that you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, would sustain us, would meet us, that we would encounter you in the deprivation. And in so doing, learn your ways and grow into who you are and who you want us to be. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been good to be together as you leave. May the grace and the peace and power of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thanks for coming.